Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Okay, hi everybody. While I'm sitting up, just give each other, or the person next to you, a Bluetooth high five. Do you know how to do that? You need sound effects. Like, whoosh. I don't hear those sound effects, guys. Okay, my name is uh, Cornell. It is a real pleasure to be here with you this morning. Uh, I'm married to my lovely wife, Nanya. There she is. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Didn't mean to do that. I'm going to hear that afterwards. But... um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's such a pleasure to be here with you. We've been here for about three years in this congregation, and we see this as our, as, as our spiritual family, you know, just to echo some of what Ruan said. We also come from Cape Town, and we were quite afraid of coming to Joburg, I guess. But uh, the way that we were received and the people in this place have just, it's been one of our biggest blessings, and it's so shaped the... Um, our experience here, and that's, that's you guys, right? That's our community. So thank you for that. Thank you for being such an awesome community. Uh, we really love this church, and we love its people. And um, we've been married now for just over three years, and I actually want to start today by telling a story from, from my wife's life um, that she told me, and when she told me this, I was just like, this is too good. Like, I have to, I've got to share this. So my wife grew up in a, in a small town called Alexandria, which is close to Port Elizabeth, and her dad was, was one of the local vets, so he, he did some of, the, some of the dairy farms. He, he served some of the dairy farms in the area. But being the child of a vet, they had some pretty interesting pet experiences growing up. It seems that if someone comes across an animal in distress and they don't know what to do with it and they don't really feel like taking responsibility, what do you do? Take it to the vet, right? Make it their problem. So they had a pet seagull at a stage growing up. They had a seal that lived in, in their shower, I think. But there was one, one specific time that she was actually mothered to a whole herd of, of guinea pigs, right? And these guinea pigs lived in a cage at the back of their, of their house. And they shared a cage with a hare, like a, a big rabbit, that belonged to her sister. And, um, and the rabbit really, or this hare really didn't like my wife. So every time she went to go and play with the guinea pigs or to feed them, she would have to brave this journey, right? Because she would have to get through the cage, past the hare, who aggressively attacked her every time to get to the guinea pigs. And it hurt. And over time, she started really building up this intimate relationship with them because of the sacrifice that she constantly had to make to, to spend time with them and to, and to care for them. But then at about the age of 10, um, her, her motherly instinct really kicked in and she became very concerned about their salvation. So what she did was she said she's going to address this, um, and she prepared a sermon, okay? And she, one day she got all her courage together. She went to the cage, and she stood in front of it, and I'm sure she had a bit of a, a stare down with this hair. And eventually she, she, you know, went for it, went in, bravely fought off the hair, and got through to her guinea pigs. And then she preached her heart out to the sermon that, that she'd prepared to, to her guinea pigs, right? And she was kind of building up, building up, and when it got to the climax, it was the big moment, right, when she was going to make the altar call to see, to see what would happen. So she kind of prepared a little ministry area in front of her where they could respond, 
And, um, and she made this altar call, but she knew that they were just guinea pigs, right? And they needed some help. So what she did was she brought along some carrots <laughs> that she continued or proceeded to kind of put in this ministry area. And lo and behold, there came the guinea pigs running in surrender. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I, I just thought like, wow, that's amazing. But, you know, a question that I want to ask this morning to, to link it back to my sermon is what do you think the guinea pigs came for? Did they come for my wife's fiery preaching or did they come for the carrots? Came for the carrots. So, um, you know, discipleship is something that I, that I wrestle with a lot um, here in Joburg. It's something that I think about a lot and that I ask the question, how do we make disciples in a context like Johannesburg? What are the things that we need to understand that we need to get right to do that? And more than that, how do, how do I be a good disciple? How am I to be a good disciple here in Johannesburg? And I was speaking to, to Henny about it the other day over breakfast. And we were talking about, about some of the things which, um, which challenge us when it, comes, when it comes to discipleship. And he said to me, you know, Cornell, in our society, one of the biggest challenges that we have is, is consumerism, right? The view that God is there to, to make our lives better, that Christianity is something, it's kind of like interactive self-help. You know, you, you come and you do something and you get some reward for that, kind of like the carrots, right? We come to church for, for the carrots. And I went away and I thought about that and I was really convicted about it because I realized if I'm honest with myself, sometimes I want the carrots. Or even more than that, when I talk to other people about the gospel, I try to put the carrots in front to motivate them to come. And I was convicted about that because on the one hand, it's not the right motivation. We know we shouldn't come to God for the stuff we get, but, but for Him. But on the other side, also, I actually realized I'm doing them a disservice and myself a disservice because you're putting them at temptation and yourself at the temptation to miss out. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And the problem is when, when we do that, when we put the carrots that our society or that our culture elevates in front of people and say, this is what you should expect, and they come to church and they don't get that, people get offended because of the wrong expectation, right? But my problem when I was growing up, what kept me away from Christianity was not consumerism, it was the other side of, of this pendulum, which is, I call it like the convict mentality, right? I remember multiple times when I was young, lying in my bed and not being able to fall asleep because I was so afraid of judgment day, right? I mean, people in church said, like, we've got to be excited for the day Jesus comes back. I did not register that at all because I was just like, I'm really afraid I'm going to be on the wrong side of that judgment, you know? I, I, um, I had a little kind of religious stuff I did to try and counteract that. I identified the shortest psalm in the Bible, and I read that every night so that I could tick my box, and it was just like an easy entry point. And I said my prayers every night, um, and it was very repetitive. But the reason why I did that was because I felt, man, I just need to do something to make sure that, that when judgment day comes... God will somehow have mercy on me. But if I, if I was honest with myself, I still had this burden, right, that I'm not going to make it. And I try to distract myself with, um, with a lot of things in my life. But there's kind of this 
this constant guilt um, that was hanging over me. So you've got these two kind of, kind of views, right? The one is the consumerist view, so God is there to make my life better, and the other one is the convict view, God is there to punish me, right? And both of these have to do with how we view God. But there's another view that the Bible talks about, which is the, the child view, right? Any would be so proud of me. Consumer, convict, child. Almost alliteration. Thank you, thank you, I, I try. But you've got the consumer view, the convict view, and the child view, which is all three views of God, and it has to do with this concept that the Bible talks about when it says the fear of God. Now, what is the fear of God? Because the first time I heard that, I didn't understand it. Right? And it's not a fear like a terror, like I'm afraid of something. I'm afraid of something that's going to happen. When the Bible talks about the fear of God, it's talking about a healthy reverence, an understanding of who God is and who we are in perspective to that. Eugene Peterson, Peterson says that the fear of God is a fear that pulls us out of our preoccupation with ourselves, our feelings, or our circumstances into a world of wonder, not dread, but astonishment, not terror, but reverence, not shaking in your boots, panic, but enraptured with love, fascination. Okay, so it's something different to the fear. And the problem is that the consumer view has got an absence of the fear of God, right? There's not an understanding of, of who God is, of how holy he is, of how big he is. The convict view has got an unhealthy fear of God. So a fear of punishment, a dread that one day I'm going to get punished for the guilt that I carry. But the son has got a healthy fear of God. Now, now what does that mean? So I want to have a look um, this morning at, at a specific scripture that talks about this in a way. But I actually want to take certain portions of the scripture and relate it to these different lenses to see how it relates to the fear of God. And I'm going to start off by, when we ask the question, how do we get a healthy fear of God? I'm going to give you the punchline from the start. Okay, is that fine? So that you remember it. So the scripture that is like the punchline in this verse, and the, um, or in this, in this chapter, the chapter is Deuteronomy 8, is verse 5. And verse 5 says, You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, the ESV says disciplines his son, so the Lord your God chastens or disciplines you. Okay. So what I want us to do is I want us to read through this part of, of Scripture. Last week we, um, we handled the, the journey or kind of the point where Israel had gone through the journey of the wilderness for 40 years and they were standing at the Jordan ready to enter into the promised land. And the spies went through and they, they spied out the promised land and, um, and they came back and they gave a bad report, right? Like we heard this morning, there were only two that gave a good report. And we were meditating on, um, on that this week in small group. And if you think about that, that's quite a scary scripture. Because out of that whole generation, only two people entered into the promised land. And that was Caleb and Joshua. And it was because of the way that they saw, the way that they perceived God, the way that they feared Him. Now where this scripture picks up is this is now the next generation. So that generation had passed away. And there was a new generation who was going to enter into the promised land um, of Israel. And Moses was kind of having a bit of a heart to heart with them. So I want us to read through this, brace yourselves, it's a long piece of scripture, but we're going to take certain parts um, out of it, or concepts out of it, and look at them individually. Okay, so let's read together from Deuteronomy verse, or chapter 8, if you've got your Bibles with you. 
Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these forty years in the wilderness, to humble you and test you, to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens or disciplines his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, a land of fountains and springs that flow out of the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land of which you will eat bread, in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and whose hills, from whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you will bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes which I command you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought you water from the flinty, out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he might establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. Okay. Long piece of scripture. Did you all catch that? Okay, good. So, you know, I believe that when we read the Bible, there is kind of this thing where we can draw parallels between how God dealt with his people in the Old Testament and how God deals with his church today, right? There, there's symbolism. There's kind of these parallels that run in the Bible that also seem to, to, to reoccur in the Bible. Things like Jesus, he's all over the Bible if you look for him, right? Or the way that God deals with his people, it's all over the Bible. And I want to I take some concepts out of this scripture and look at them through these lenses that we identified. So the lens of, of the consumer, the lens of the convict, convict, and the lens of the child. And these four, there are four aspects I want to look at. The first is the law, right? So God gave his people a law, and he says, I've given you these statutes. He gave them a law or a way of life that basically touched every area of their lives and told them how they should live, how they should act, how they should go about their days, how they should treat other people, everything. He gave them this, this way of life. The second thing that he gave them was a promise, right? I'm going to take you into a land that is flowing with milk and honey, right? This, this promised land to which they were heading. Now, today we don't have maybe a physical promised land that we're heading towards anymore, but we've got a spiritual promised land, right? 
The Christian life is full of the promises of God. We are going somewhere. We have the hope of a future that is good. Okay. The third is the test. So this verse says that God tested them in the wilderness to see what is in their hearts, whether they would follow His commandments or not. Okay? And the final one is the warning. Moses warns them. He says to them, if you do not follow my commandments, things are not going to go good. Okay? Things are going to go bad. You're going to perish. So there's, there's a definite warning. Now the question is, how do these different lenses view kind of these four aspects. Okay, so let's start with the consumer. How does the consumer view this? Well, the consumer views the law as optional, right? I'm here for my life. And to be honest, if I'm looking around at the people around me, there are people who don't follow the law so well, and yet they're blessed, right? This person sleeps with his girlfriend or lives with his girlfriend, and they're not married, and yet he's doing well in his career, He's getting promotions, right? So, so I don't really understand, like, what's in it for me? Okay, the law is optional because we don't understand what the, what the consequences are in, it, in a sense. The second is the promise. How does the consumer view the promise? Well, they feel entitled to it. They say that I'm entitled to these promises because I'm doing the right thing. I go to church, right? I read my Bible, I pray, I tithe, those tithes are building up, you know, one day they're going to come back to me. <laughs> I'm surprised because as I'm saying this, like I'm so convicted by my own mind and, 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 and heart sometimes. But there's this thing of like, I'm entitled, God owes me something because I've signed on the dotted line, you know, I've said my prayer, I've, I've done this, I've, I've said the salvation prayer, so I'm in, you know, God, now it's up to you to, to keep me here, right? I'm entitled to this promise. And third is the test. How does the, the consumer view the test? The consumer views the test as bad customer service, right? I'm doing, I'm doing the right thing, and yet now suddenly there's hardship in my life. Like, where does this come from? This is not what I signed up for. This wasn't in the terms and conditions, or I didn't read it. Maybe I didn't read the terms and conditions. Who of you, like, install software, and you're just like, I accept? Okay, but... But this is not what I signed up for. This is, this is bad customer service. God, you should be blessing me. I mean, all my, pe- all my friends at work are looking at me like, bless me, and then they'll follow you as well, you know? <laughs> the final one is the warning. How does the consumer view the warning? He puts the obligation not on himself, but on God. God will understand. Things will be fine. God will understand my motives and my heart. It's you know, even if I'm living in sin, it's okay. God will, God will just kind of wipe it under the rug. It's, it's up to Him to keep those things away from me. So the problem with the consumer is there's an absence of the fear of God. There is not the healthy reverence of who God is and, 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 and how, well, who He is and how He does things. The second is the, is the convict, where the consumer has an absence of the fear of God. The convict has got an unhealthy fear of God. The convict views the law as burdensome. Right? I've got this constant guilt that's weighing me down. I'm so aware of the fact that I fall short and I don't know what to do about it. Right? And eventually that could lead to something like self-righteousness. Right? I'm trying my best and I know I fall short, but at least I'm not as bad as... Who can I pick on? Wesley. I'm definitely not as good as Wesley. Wesley is like... But, but you get the point. Like, It's this kind of burden that... You just try to find relief from because you're so aware of your sin and your guilt. You're so aware that you fall short, and that's what's always in front of your eyes. The second 
is the promise. How does the convict view the promise? They view it as something that they need to earn, something that they need to work for. If I just try harder, if I, if I work hard enough, then God will reward me, right? It's something I need to, to, and especially if I can show that I'm suffering, you know. That's what the Pharisees were blamed for. Jesus was like, when you're fasting, if you're going to show it to people, that's not where my heart is at, you know, because they were like, hey, look, everybody, look how holy I am. I'm fasting and you're not, you know. But I've got to earn it. I've got to earn these promises of, of, of God. The third is the test. How does the convict view the test? He views it or she views it as punishment. I'm being punished for something that I've done and I need to correct my actions, Okay. I've got an open door somewhere. Not all suffering that Christians go through are open doors or caused by sin. Some of it definitely is. And I'm not saying that, you know, there aren't times when we need to correct our actions because it's causing bad things. But, but it's not always going to be the case. But the convict views it as punishment. I knew that this was coming. And there's something in my life that I have to fix to make this better. And finally, the warning. How does the convict view the warning? The convict puts the obligation to, to abrogate the warning completely on himself. I need to make sure. I need to try harder. I need to act better. If I just, through sheer willpower, you know, keep this law, then things will be fine. Okay, but the third way to view these things is through the lens of a son. A healthy fear of God, an understanding of reverence. And how does a son view these concepts? A son views the law as God giving us his identity. As God imparting his identity on us. The son understands that you act out of a place of who you are, yes. But what you do reinforces your identity. C.S. Lewis also said that um, we we inevitably become what we impersonate. And the son understands that God gives us a law not to steal our fun, nor to put a heavy burden on us, but to identify us, to give us an identity that is linked to his. And as we do those things, it's like family values, right? These are the things that our family stands for. I'm not not saying we should get legalistic, because Jesus made it clear that the law is fulfilled by loving your neighbor. But there are certain family values that we have as the children of God that we adhere to, because that is who we are. That is the identity that God places on us. Yes, I see. I've got to try so hard not to cry now because I see Nathan is here, and I sorry, I'm going to tell a story about you. But uh, the second is the promise, right? How does the son view the promise? The son views the promise as inheritance, and Nathan really helped me to understand this better. So he said to me, you know, we were at university together, and he said to me that. Um, Every, every holiday used to go home and work, work on their farm. They've got a farm in the Karua. And, um, and he, I asked him once, you know, like, does your dad pay you for this? Like, what do you do? And he's, he told me, no, like, that's not, that's not how it works. Because when I go home, I'm working hard. And we were there last year on his farm um, for a hunt. And we actually saw, he showed me some of the dams and the stuff that he built. But he said, you know, I'm working hard, and, 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 and every year I come here, and I'm, I'm giving sacrifice now, but it's because I've got an understanding that one day this is going to be mine. One day, this, this farm, which is now my father's, we're preparing it because it's a family inheritance, right? It's, and with Jesus, it's not through, through physical blood, or with God, it's not through, through, through physical blood that we inherit the promises, promises, but it's through the blood of Jesus that we're brought into his family. And it's, it's not something that we can earn. It's not something that we need to work for because it's something that God prepares for us. 
The third is the test. How does the son view the test? The son views the test as, as necessary. There's a story, um, I don't know how true this is, so forgive me if it's not, but it still proves the point, that, um, that someone, someone said, uh, someone went to Michelangelo one day, and they asked him this question, well, Michelangelo, the, the sculptor, right, the painter, and they said to him, how do, you do, how do you make a sculpture like the sculpture of David, that beautiful sculpture, of the famous one, you know, and Michelangelo responded and said, all that I do is I go to a rock and I chip away everything that is not David. I don't know, very philosophical. I don't know how, how true it is, but it, it makes a really good point because it's, it's kind of the same with God. You know, God is constantly chipping away at our characters. He's constantly doing a work. That's why the Bible says God is completing a good work in us. But the thing is, for us to change, sometimes we need to go through tests. Sometimes we need to see what's in our own hearts so that we get to a place where we're willing to change. And secondly, hardship forms that, that perseverance and, and character in us. That's what the Bible says. And the Son sees that test, that hardship is necessary. It's necessary for our development. It's, necessary, it's a necessary part of our training because we are part of the family and we're going somewhere together. And the final one is the warning. How does the son view the warning? The son views the warning as guardrails. In this um, piece of scripture that we read, Moses tells the, the, the nation of Israel a few times, do not forget the Lord your God. Right? Do not forget him. And it actually says there, do not forget him by not keeping his commandments. So it has got to do with, with how we live and how we do things. But by implication... What Moses is saying, do not forget the Lord your God because he will not forget you. If there is going to be a breakdown in this relationship, it's not going to be coming from God, right? But you have to understand that you are in danger of forgetting him. There are certain things that are going to happen when it goes well with you or when it goes bad with you. You're in danger of forgetting him, but do not forget because he is a God that is good to you, because he is testing you to do you good in the end, and the son understands that we need guardrails in our lives, that we need boundaries, that when God talks to us or when he gives us commandments, it's not just to be, you know, it's because he's a father and because he knows what is best for us. And all of these things accumulate in how these three lenses see God. So the consumer sees God as somebody who is there to, like, like I said, like interactive self-help. I come to church, I do the right thing, I get blessed, right? The convict sees God as a prison guard or an executioner, and they're constantly in this dread and this fear of the punishment that is coming. But a son sees God as a father, a father who firstly provides. Deuteronomy says, you know, Moses says to them, you'd walked through the wilderness these 40 years, God provided for you, he gave you manna, for food. He gave you water from the rock. Your sandals and your clothes did not wear. Your foot did not swell. You had supernatural sustenance when you needed it. Secondly, God is a God who judges, but he's not a judge who's, who's not on our side. He's a, God, he's a judge who is righteous, and yet he is merciful. He's the king of the universe, right? The, the buck stops with God. There is no higher authority in the universe than God, and He has to be righteous. Otherwise, there would not be something like justice. If He doesn't enforce it, no one will. And sons understand that. They understand that their God 
is almighty, all-powerful, bigger than we could ever imagine, and that creates in us the necessary reverence, because God is not our buddy. He's not there. He's not like our play friend. He's, he's holy. He's righteous. If, if, if He were to appear here right now, all of us would not only die, we'd probably be like obliterated from existence, you know, it, like He's holy. That's why I always find it funny when people even just see angels in the Bible, what happens every time? on their face, you know, and then they wake up like four hours later and they've got no idea. Because God is holy. There's a holiness that we just don't understand as humans, and we have to recognize that. We have to understand that when we lose sight of that, it's not good for us. And finally, the son sees the father as a corrector. And this is really what I want to talk about today, but, or the key to my message today, but God corrects us when we go off the path. God is not a disinterested God. He's a God who wants relationship with us. He's a God who is interested in our characters, interested in our eternity. And He acts to make sure that we stay on the right path. And I just want to share a story from my life where I experienced this. So, some time ago, I went away with, with people from church uh, on a weekend away. And on this weekend, we were spending time together, but some of my insecurities kind of kicked in. I didn't really feel part of the group, right? I didn't really feel accepted. And as the weekend went on, I kind of looked at this and I was like, mm, you know, if there are some things happening here that I don't feel is, is so Christian, right? This is not the way that good Christians should act. They should accept me. They should bring me in. They should make, make more of an effort, okay? And God challenged me on that weekend to, um, to connect with some of the people and kind of dead, but I, I almost separated myself. And after the weekend, I went home. And if I'm honest, like I had a little bit of bitterness in my heart. I was like, you know, these people are in church with me, but you don't have to like everybody or, you know, you have to love everyone, but you don't have to like everybody. I don't need to be their friend. Like they'll just be there and I'll be here and that'll be fine. You know, they'll live their lives and I'll live mine and that's it. And then my week started and it was a terrible week. Like one of those weeks where everything just goes wrong. At work, the one crisis after the other, I bumped my car. And later on, I was like expecting things to go wrong because it was just, it was like supernatural. Like I was like, how does this happen? Everything is li- that can go wrong literally goes wrong. And except for that, a few things happened that week that made me so aware of my humanness. A few situations where I acted in a way that like if the Christian bar is here, I was like, way, way below it. And objectively looking at the situation, I know that I missed the mark. You know, I know that I didn't hit the target. At the, at the end of the week, I went to God and I was like, God, what is going on? Like, am I cursed? Like, am I under attack? You know, like start praying those prayers. Like I've cut off every attack against me. But, um, but what is going on? Because like, this is not normal. And then God took me to Matthew 7 verse 1, which says, judge not and you won't be judged. And I actually felt him say to me in that moment that, Cornell, these are your brothers. Loving them is not optional. And I didn't call you to judge them. I called you to love them. And in that moment, I was like, whoa. I experienced like heavy conviction and, and I repented. But reflecting on it afterwards, you know, that experience made me feel so loved. That the God of the universe would care enough to stop me in my tracks, even if it was a small thing in my heart that was on the wrong direction, to stop me in my tracks and to put me back on the right path. Like, who am I to deserve that? 
Who am I that the God of the universe would care that much and actually intervene? But that is what we have as children. We've got a real relationship with Him. We've got a relationship that is alive. We've got a, a relationship where God does intervene in our lives, where, do, where God does care, and where we can't just do what we want because we belong to a family. It's not about spoiling our joy. It's about, it's about relationship. So I just I want us to stand up this morning, and I just want to... I actually want to give an opportunity um, to respond for two groups of people. Now, firstly, you know, the thing with the test, the thing with discipline and, with be, and being tested is we don't always pass the test. You look at any of, of the men or the women of faith in the Bible, and you will find at some point they failed the test, sometimes dismally, right? We, we don't pass the test. There is only one who always passed the test, and that was Jesus. And in this piece of Scripture... It actually says that God tested them and gave them manna so that they would know that they were not, should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Right, Because Jesus was where the Israelites were 40 years in the desert. Jesus was 40 days in the desert, and he was also tested. He also underwent tests, but he actually passed the test. And yet, how was he treated? He was shamed. He was unfairly treated. Eventually he was flogged and he was killed so that we who don't pass the test can be treated like those who do. So that we can have a relationship with God even though we fall short. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't actually know what that means. I'm talking about hearing God's voice. I'm talking about knowing, like seeing his actions or, or, or his hand in, 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 in your life, and you actually, you've, you've never had that, but maybe you're here and you're actually experiencing a draw on your heart, something that says to you, I've got a desire to know God in that way. And I just want to appeal to you almost to treat that with the necessary urgency. This is not another company reaching out to you for, for, your, for, your, for your customership. It's the God of the universe who's extending an invitation, right? And if you've got that desire on your heart this morning that, that you're not in relationship with Him, but that you, that you want to know Him, if you've got a desire to know Him, because He is a good Father. He, the deepest desire of your hearts were placed there by Him. He knows you better than anyone else, and He, he wants a relationship with you where you discover life like you've never known it before. And I'm not saying that from a consumerist point of view. I mean that. It's not always going to be easy. It doesn't, you know, the Bible says it very clearly that and Christians do go through hardships. But you can know that when you're in God, there is not one moment of hardship that is wasted. He uses everything in our lives to bring us closer to Him. And if that's you this morning, I want you to raise your hand, not as a symbol to us or to anyone here, but in response to God. And after you've raised it, you can lower it again. But just to say, God, I desire to know you in that way. I want to know you. So, so if that's you, you can raise it now. And I also want you to just understand that the Bible is written in the context of community. Right? I know we're, we've got people here at YouTube, YouTubing at the moment, and that's, that's great. Some people can't make it right now. But it's not enough to be a Christian by yourself. I mean, 
The Bible makes it very clear, if you read the New Testament, that community is essential to the Christian life. Sometimes it's not possible, and God gives grace for that, sure. But community is so important. It's so important in our development. Because the truth is that when I'm isolated and when I'm alone, I do waver from the path and there's no one to correct me. And if you're here this morning and you're not in community, I also want to appeal to you. Find a church. If it's this church, awesome. We'll, this is an amazing family. I believe it's a, you know, we love it. You know, there is, there is no such thing as a perfect church. My old pastor used to say, if you find a perfect, perfect church, don't join it because you're going to mess it up. Right? There, there's no such thing. We've got flaws. But, but we're a community who wants to follow Jesus together. Slot in. Find a small group. Find people who can love you and who you can love. Find people who you can serve. And have that expectation in your heart that God is going to meet you. Because God always satisfies a hungry heart. Never believe that God will not satisfy your hunger. And then the second group of people is maybe you're here and you do have a relationship with God. But like me, you realize that sometimes we approach God out of either this view of consumerism, right? we come for the carrots, or out of the view of the convict. I'm so afraid. I'm so aware of my guilt and my shame, right? And you realize that you don't have a healthy fear of God. And if that's you this morning, I, I'm actually going to ask us to do a physical act by going on our knees just as an act of surrender to God. And if you can relate to that, I just want to ask you to join me in that. And we're, we're going to pray. And I, I just want you to, um, to pray after me in this. Say, Father, I ask that you will come and father me. I'm sorry for the times when you've spoken to me, but I've not responded. Lord, I'm sorry for my wrong expectations that actually don't allow me to see you, that keep me from the life that you have for me, that keep me from relationship with you. And I ask, Father, that you will fill me with your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, that you will come as the corrector as the spirit of adoption by whom I can cry out, Abba, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.